film bar had the best snacks out of any movie theater. And they had like a whole um, mini freezer of different types of ice cream sandwiches. And because the movie's so freaking long, I probably ate like five ice cream sandwiches while I was <laughs> Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklip. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing another movie swap of a couple of modern classics. I watched Wolf of Wall Street for the first time. And Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Moonlight. Very different energies, these movies. <laughs> uh, two very different takes on masculinity and uh, two bangers. I feel like we say that every time I tried to think of a different word, but honestly, these movies <laughs> rip. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, how are you doing, my friend? What you've been watching? Good. Things have been good. Doing a lot of birthday celebrating. That's been a lot of fun. Um, and I've been watching a lot of Batman. So I <laughs> did watch the newest, um, The Batman, uh, starring yes. Robert Battenson and many others. And it was really good. I really liked it. But I realized I had truly only seen the Christopher Nolan ones. And so mm -hmm. I went back and I watched all of the other Batman films, um, sans the uh, Adam West film, which I could not find on streaming. And my brain is very Gotham mushy right now. <laughs> <I feel laughs> Gotham like mushy sounds like a glass animal song. Yeah, um, <laughs> I kind of feel but, like a glass animal song. <laughs> uh, to spring your favorite thing and make you rank, uh, where does the Batman fall in your Batman film ranking? Oh, pretty high. I really liked it a lot. Um, yeah. I liked the like crime detective aspect mm -hmm. of it more than the, you know, a movie with one car chase is good for me. And that's mm -hmm. what I got. Um, I've also watched, I watched the new uh, Sebastian Stan movie on Hulu, Fresh. That was Ooh. really fun. It's a, like a thriller comedy. Um, she starts dating this guy. He's not who he says he is. Classic. It's fun to watch like Sebastian Stan just be so weird. Um, yeah, it's really fun. Um, and then I watched just out of a pure like recommendation from TikTok – a French film last night called Nothing to Hide. Um, I'm not going to pronounce it in French because I don't speak French, but um, when you put it into Netflix and you put Nothing to Hide, it comes up. Um, it was really good. It's about these um, seven friends that they've been friends for a long time. They're having a dinner party and they decide to all put their phones in the middle. And every time a notification comes up or a call comes up, it has to be read out loud to the to the group oh, um, God. except you know there's like interpersonal dynamics and infidelity and deceit and secrets and like all this kind of stuff and it was pretty it was like a very um like high tension but not scary we were like oh my god like what is going to happen next um it was good it was a good little uh french drama if you have any yeah. any uh like an hour and a half to kill I always have an hour and a half to kill. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What have you been watching? Um, also watched the Batman as aforementioned, um, which enjoyed the movie. Uh, did it need to be three hours? Probably not, but I don't know what I'd cut out of it. Um, mm -hmm. And then I decided to watch another Colin Farrell joint uh, after Yang. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. 
yeah i only just realized it came out the same weekend as the batman um it's on showtime anytime if you have that streaming service nice um Koganada second film with Colin Farrell, Haley Lou Richardson shows up. Um, it's a cool, like contained, futuristic sci-fi type story. Really patient, and then uh, I enjoyed it. And then I also watched "I Was a Simple Man." Uh, it's a movie by Christopher Makoto Yogi, uh, Hawaiian. Our uh, movie is based in Hawaii. Um, he did a movie a few years ago called "August at Akikos." Um, kind of similar vibes as After Yang, with like the super patient, um, very sparse type of thing not a lot of dialogue um Hmm. and then on the opposite end of the spectrum i also watched what's up doc which is a peter bogdanovich film with barbara streisand 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 (laughs) uh which was fucking hilarious i was like rolling uh really good time i've never watched a peter bogdanovich movie um until then uh and gotta make my way through his uh filmography because i know he is one of the greats and that was a that was a banger i enjoyed it so those movies we have watched, but let's talk about the movies at hand. Amanda, let's uh, why don't you give the people like the insight as to the movies we're swapping, why we're swapping them, that whole deal, the premise of our pod. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to try to watch something, you know, maybe made within the last 10 years that came out that was just an instant classic, but somehow had missed our our radars. And not that we didn't know about them or didn't know that they're good or didn't like them. It's just that, you know, lots of content, only so many hours in the day. Um, and it's kind of funny because I feel like we sort of like swapped types of movies we like like stereotypes almost and like (laughs) i gave you like a really like bold brash like masculine film and not that you only like masculine films but i think you like kind of like more outward films which i think is great and Mm -hmm. uh moonlight is like a very solemn very interpersonal very quiet um sort of movie and i was really ashamed that I hadn't seen Moonlight and I had <laughs> tried to watch it before, but I was like not in the right headspace and I like turned it on and, you know, after like a couple of minutes, I was like, I'm just not gonna be able to give this the time it needs. So I'm going to mm-hmm. turn it off. And I was always like a little too intimidated to go back, um, but it's really easy watch. So it was good. Uh, so that's why we're swapping them. Just some modern classics, um, some ones in the last few years that we somehow missed. Ready to flip a coin? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, call it? Uh, heads. All right, it's Heads. What are we talking about first? Nice. I think we should talk about Moonlight first. All right, let's do it. Amanda, in computer light, podcasters look blue. Uh, you watched Moonlight. I felt so into the soul. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, now that we've uh, caused an existential crisis, why don't you tell me about Moonlight? Yeah. So Moonlight is a movie by Barry Jenkins based on the Terrell Alvin McCraney unpublished sort of autobiographical play in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. It starts with Juan, played by Mahershala Ali, checking in with a drug runner of his when he sees a group of boys chasing a smaller boy. He finds the smaller one who goes by Little in an abandoned house. He doesn't talk really so he brings him home Mahershala Ali brings him home to his girlfriend Teresa played by Janelle Monet. eventually Little tells Juan where he lives so he drops him off at home Little whose real name is Chiron spends more time with Juan in order to avoid his house where his mother is working as a sex worker 
Um, Juan sees Little's mom, Paula, played by Naomi Harris, smoking crack after Juan's drug runner sold it to her. And they get into it about who is best to raise Little. Um, In protecting him and relating to him, Juan teaches Little how to swim and uh, how to stand up for himself and shares a tale about how in moonlight, black boys look blue. Juan tells Little that his mom does do drugs and that he does sell them to her. It's really sad. Flash forward, Chiron is now a high school student going by Chiron, still being picked on by the same boys. He is still friends with Kevin, who was the only boy from childhood who was kind of nice to him, but Chiron is still a really quiet kid. He spends time at Teresa's house even after Juan has passed away because his mother's drug addiction has gotten a lot worse and home isn't really a safe space. Uh, Kevin sees Chiron on the beach one night, and after getting high, Kevin gives Chiron a hand job and they kiss. The next day, the bullies tell Kevin to beat the shit out of Chiron, and he does. The day after that, Chiron barges into the school and cracks the bully over the head with a chair and gets arrested. Flash forward again, and Chiron now goes by Black, which is a nickname that Kevin gave him. He himself is a drug dealer in Atlanta, reflecting Juan. Uh, He visits his mother in a rehab center and one day gets a call from Kevin. He drives down to visit Kevin in Miami and there is still clear chemistry between the men. Kevin says his life didn't really turn out the way he expected it to be, but that he's still really happy. Black breaks down crying and says that he has never been intimate with anyone since Kevin. As Kevin comforts him, we see Black as little back on the beach under the moonlight. How'd I do? You did it. Um, this movie is, it's pretty straightforward in like its plot um, and um, it does a lot for like in terms of visual language. So in terms of the actual plot, I think you uh, nailed it. So why did you pick this one as your modern classic pick? Straight up, one of the most beautiful movies made this century. Um, one of the best movies of the decade. Real breakout film for Barry Jenkins, a best picture winner, um, which we'll get into that moment, I'm sure, later. And a movie that tells a story that we don't get to see a lot of in Hollywood or just in movies in general. Um, and I think it's like not like it's like, oh, this is so important. But like it, it's just a movie about this person's life. And like it doesn't have to be any deeper than that. And it can be deeper than that. Um, but also it's just like this really poetic, beautiful look at a man's life. And I think that... Um, it, that in itself is enough reason to watch it, and it just happens to be fucking great. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of sort of like along that line, one of the reviews I was reading that really stuck with me is that this movie, while being about being black and being gay, is not about being black or being gay, it's about growing up, and like it's about how you relate to yourself and how you accept yourself and how others accept you and how you move through the world. But that is a movie that we've seen in a a white hetero light a lot of times. And the fact that this movie just isn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) because those stories also exist is in itself uh, just important and celebrated. Like it was huge critical reviews. And then also on top of that, it, on a grander scale, introduced the world basically to Barry Jenkins as a director. Um, and he will probably be um, one of our most important people in film for 
you know, decades to come. Um, so with that, you know, after you watched it for the first time, what stood out to you? The the first thing that stood out to me is that notion of like this movie is barely about being black and being gay while also very much being about being black and being gay. Um, Cause it was always like sold or told to me as like, Oh yeah, it's like gay black man movie, which like it, that's not an incorrect description, but it's not necessarily right. a correct description. Um, so I thought that like just the way that was handled, I think in the movie was um, really interesting. Yeah, it's uh, like a lot of the best stories. It's hyper specific, and in its specificity, it is like general and grand in like the like audience universal. that we can reach. Yeah, universal. That's the word I was looking for. And um, yeah, that that's exactly that's exactly it. So then, the other thing that really stood out to me is that Mahershala Ali is barely in this movie. <laughs> that was so jarring. Um, in like the first half of the middle section um, because all of the uh, trailers, all the advertisements, all the marketing like has Mahershala pretty um, front and center, which like obviously you can't give away the fact that he dies like that. Right. Um, in this year that it came out in 2016, Mahershala Ali is also in six movies. <laughs> yeah. In- including hidden figures which was also nominated for best picture that year so this is like the big blowout mahershala ali year i think Mm -hmm. as a as a uh movie guy for the masses it goes from being like oh that guy from that thing i like um to mahershala ali like you know he was in house of cards he was in the hunger games movies he was in a movie we had previously watched he was in place beyond the pines but this is when he becomes mahershala ali the other thing that really stood out to me is how good of a job they did casting the three different um timelines Uh, you could see then like light facial expressions how similar they were and mm-hmm. it really did feel like the same person grown up over three different timelines. And I don't know who in casting does that sort of job, but I think that's like so cool. When they get it yeah. right, they do like a really good job. I'm always so impressed. I, I read that Barry Jenkins kept all three um, people who played Chiron apart, like so they wouldn't try to copy each other, which is oh. crazy. Like when you think about when we watched um, Place Beyond the Pines to call back to that movie again. And, um, Dane DeHaan really tried to like emulate a little bit of this Ryan Gosling in this mm-hmm. uh, to it. And like it works and doesn't work or whatever. But in this movie, like you said, uh, you, you just you feel like you're growing up with Sharon and like everybody kind of nails it. It never feels like out of place or out of character. It's really good. Um, I thought the uh, his entire relationship with his mom is so visceral and it's really mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Um, and it just... I think reflects the instability he feels in his life. But I thought the the middle section was the most heartbreaking section. Um, even though, you know, the first section we see him, you know, not having a good relationship with her and being screamed at by her. And the last section, she's like, I'm better. So I'm trying to like influence you and he's not mm-hmm. taking it, obviously. But just the the middle section of like the like full frontal shot of her talking to him and the jump cuts while she's like trying to convince him to like get the money. And she's in that yellow outfit with the yellow, uh, with the yellow walls behind her. It's like instantly burned into my memory. Her acting is so good. And, um, there, yeah, you can like feel the pain between the two of them. 
And you're like, oh, no, no, don't do this to him. She's almost treating him like a full adult or like he's burdened with like adult worries, but he's still very much a kid who's like also getting bullied at school. And yeah, Naomi Harris is awesome in this role. She was uh, hesitant to play the part too because she she told herself when she started acting she would never play a crackhead black woman because that's such a you know awful stereotype that is like often given to black actresses mm-hmm. and but after talking to Barry Jenkins and reading the script and like seeing how much like life and empathy and uh just like a full picture painted in this movie that that character is she you know decided to do it and um thank goodness for it cuz she's awesome she she's a, such a rangy actor too and yeah. uh you get kind of that whole spectrum in this movie. Yeah, she pulls so much emotional weight in this film that is about essentially one character and then the people who rotate in his life. Mm-hmm. Like she has so much pull um throughout the the whole film. It's it's really it's very seriously impressive. <laughs> yeah, it de- definitely is. The, the whole uh winding way of this movie and how everything like you said kind of circulates around Chiron um and how those things are weaved is impressive and I'm sure we'll get into that more but um was there anything else that stood out to you? Yeah, just one last thing. I mean, I it's a cliche at this point, but I can't not say it. Just like A24 loves Florida. They really they love, do. They love Florida. So it started with Spring Breakers and then we get Moonlight, The Florida Project, Waves, and Zola are all based in Florida. If Spring Breakers is one piece of the the A24 stereotype, I feel like Moonlight also adds in like the second half of it in terms of there's going to be like this uh, handheld camera shot in water and it's going to be in Florida. And did I mention it's going to be in water? And did I mention it's going to be in Florida? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, like, and like that side of A24, because there's also the horror side, which um, we have not touched on because I'm a scaredy cat. But yeah, it, it's very much A24 core. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the Florida Project, a beautiful movie if you've not seen yes. it. Uh, there are other independent studios out there at TikTok, but um, they are one of the good ones. Uh, what have you thought about most since watching this film? Because I feel like this is one that sticks with you. So this is obviously the big one. This is going to be the the Oscars moment. Oh, um, Christ. So for just a, cr- a quick run through for anyone who doesn't know, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty go and present the uh, Oscar for Best Picture. Warren Beatty is obviously confused while he's doing it. He announces La La Land. Uh, they all rush up there. There's clear confusion on the stage and a uh, stage director comes out and tells them that they had the wrong envelope and that Moonlight had actually won best picture. And like people had already like done acceptance speeches, like people are like holding Oscars like it is like fully awarded yes. to La La Land. And uh one of the producers of La La Land like stops everything and is like, no, 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 we didn't win. We didn't win. This is wrong. Moonlight. Moonlight won Best Picture. This is not a joke. And he like shows up the card and like the camera like hits it at the right moment. And it it just it's a movie that's so canonized, but I can't still grasp actually happened. What? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yes, it's it's insane, unhinged. I remember sitting down and watching that and like being so confused and like actively laughing so hard. And so I think it was just one of those moments where it's like, of course, La La Land's going to win. Like they were nominated for like 14 awards, this this Academy Awards. And then Moonlight comes up and, and it's just such a 
just seeing the the La La Land crew ushered off the stage as the Moonlight crew comes on um, is is kind of like one of the first, maybe the second Oscars moment I personally remember. The first one being like Jennifer Lawrence falling. And it just comes, it's a perfect representation of how we're tr- the Oscars and the, the Academy is attempting on having a new page turn as far as the movies they consider, the people who are in the Academy, the the movies that are being rewarded and awarded. And for a movie musical about old school, like about Hollywood, that's sort of singing in the rain, but modern and like with all these white people in it. And it's a movie I like a lot. Like I yeah. really like La La Land, a beautiful movie. And, and for that to like, fake win to a, like an uh, independent feature by not that well known of a black director about gay black love is so <laughs> like we're 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 moving on yeah i think uh what's also sticks out to me about this oscar ceremony is one um barry jenkins gives a very awesome concise speech I'm paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect of I'm done with dreams to hell with them. This is real, mm-hmm. um, which just it was so spot on. If anybody has, does not follow Barry Jenkins on social media, do it, especially around Oscars times and award seasons, because he's always just around. He's an awesome follow. He loves being with other people making films. And I also liked um, how afterward, like, you know, it, it'd be really easy to um pit Damien Chazelle, the director of La La Land, and Barry Jenkins against one another. And they were they were having none of that. Um, it was quite amicable between them. All right. So moving on from the Oscars, the other thing that I've thought a lot about is that last shot in the full circle-ness of this film about life. Um, it's so unbelievably beautiful, like you said. I, I cried like a single tear (laughs) like a beautiful (laughs) movie tear right at the end i've thought a lot about you know connected to this how much that beach means to him um the same beach where he learns to swim is where uh him and kevin share an intimate moment which is where um he thinks about when he's being comforted by kevin at the end of the movie like he becomes a man in a lot of different ways on this beach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really lovely. Because of his life and the way he's experienced things, like Sharon has has become hard and like mm-hmm. he had to rebuild himself in this way. And he could finally like be that little kid again in a way and like heal that child in a way when he's with Kevin and, and like is actually feeling loved um in probably a way he hasn't felt since Juan was teaching him how to swim on that beach. Uh yeah, it's such a beautiful shot. Yeah, it's really beautiful, which you know brings me to another thing I've thought a lot about since the movie, since watching the movie, which is Trevante Rhodes. So mm-hmm. he plays Black, the adult um, rendition of Chiron, and in this moment between him and Kevin, where Kevin is sort of breaking him down a little bit in like a good way, like I see through your hard mm-hmm. exterior bullshit. Um, Trevante Rhodes is so naive looking in that moment. And he Mm -hmm. is so big and so tough (laughs) and so rugged. And like, you're right. Like he's got the tattoos and he's got the grills and he's got, you know, he's wearing a lot of, um, 
he just is a big presence and with like one look and like a couple of questions from the only person he's felt love from he is so innocent his eyes look like a child's eyes in that moment and yeah. that was the I was like holy hell this <laughs> is such good acting it felt so honest in that moment yeah it's a special performance because you know obviously you meet little and you're inherently biased toward like wanting the best for this little child who has mm-hmm. um a hard life and then and in, he's so small looking yeah yeah exactly oh, and uh, to protect him and then and then uh when you get the the second chapter Sharon and ashton sanders like even then he's still very slender and he's getting picked on so of course you have inherent sympathy for him and then but when you get to black and he like you said he is like he's buff like he is a beautiful man uh oh he's gorgeous <laughs> he, he looks fucking great but you know that it's all a front you know that like what his life has been and and kevin sees it too and the way he kind of starts to waver at the moment that he sits down to see kevin um from that image uh is so precise and it's such a special performance from him i would love to see him in more more things he is a really captivating actor um, and can obviously play a little softer role, could play a harder role as shown in this one role. Um, and I would love to see him just like in anything. Um, was there anything else that kind of has stuck in your brain since watching? Yeah. The last thing is I've thought, um, obviously because I am me, I thought a lot about the sound design. Mm-hmm. Um, little doesn't talk a lot. That's part of his characteristic. And so in moments that are really loud, like when his mother is yelling at him, or certain questions that Juan asks that he doesn't want to address, the sound cuts out um, because, you know, Little doesn't talk because he there's too much noise in his world and he needs to, like, contain it. And then another scene where the sound design is really brilliant is um, when Chiron is in the principal's office and the principal's, like, trying to tell him how to handle the situation. And he looks like like in the bottom corner of the screen and he's like guarding himself, his face from the principal and all the audio cuts out. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of when the audience knows that like, a he's not listening anymore, but also like that's when Chiron decides to take action. Mm -hmm. Like it, it becomes really clear, like as if something has clicked in his head that like now he needs to become a tough guy. And I think the sound does like a really beautiful job of expressing a lot of emotion in this film. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, And I like the, they pointed out the principal scene because obviously we see a lot when in the first chapter with little that he will not speak. Mm -hmm. Um, He does not speak, especially when like confronted at all. It's not, I think it's not something that's clicked. It's snapped. Yeah. That's a better way. That's a better way to put it. Which again makes the last scene so great too, because Kevin's the only one that can like one will talk to him and not at him. And two, that gets him to talk. Like it's the one moment where he breaks the silence mm-hmm. and is and tells Kevin at the end like he's the only man that he's been intimate with. But yeah, even the um the soundtrack is great. Nicholas Bertel's score is awesome. The Aretha Franklin song that they use twice in the movie is oh, awesome. So good. Again, the chopped and screwed tape that uh is associated with this movie also great as much as like as beautiful of a movie as it is it is also a like 
great sounding i need to think of a different adjective besides beautiful but <laughs> but well, it, it's yeah a, yeah it's a really like moving and evocative and like nuanced film uh, it's really cool. oh, there's some adjectives another, for you. An, yeah, the, <laughs> another psychotic part of the score that like is amazing. So the um, the scene where he's he, in the first chapter where the sound cuts out and it's just those like strings like manically playing and um, it shows uh, Chiron's mom yelling at him, but to silence and it's just the score. Um, apparently, Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Patel like made that after everything was done. Like that was after all the VFX were done and all the color grading was done. They didn't have that piece of music. And I think it's called um, in, in the score, it's called uh, the middle of the world. That track is like so pivotal and it does so much to move and and shape like the emotional pulse of the story. And it's crazy that they did it at the last second. I mean, I guess we all procrastinate, but still. Me and Barry Jenkins, both procrastinators. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, after you pondered the movie, uh, what was the first things you looked up about it? So literally, I ended the movie. I cried my single tear. I took a big breath, and I went to YouTube and <laughs> rewatched the Oscars moment like immediately. <laughs> so I was like, now that I have context, I want to fully understand this like yep. pivotal cultural moment. Um, so... We've already talked a lot about it. We can move on from it. But I was happy to know, obviously, that it won Best Picture. It, As we mentioned, it wasn't necessarily a movie that we could ever dream could win Best Picture based on the mm -hmm. history of the Academy. And I wanted <laughs> to know maybe some statistics on that. Um, so it did become the first LGBTQ film with an all-black cast and the second lowest grossing film domestically to win Best Picture, um, wow. which is incredibly impressive. Um, that it was sort of the like underdog of the entire of, in all ways, um, and it it won in such a memorable uh, way. Yeah, and I think again the the Oscars for as much as we like <laughs> tease them or make fun of it or like I don't know the Oscars are fraught as much, but we still mm -hmm. they still matter. Um, yeah. at least in terms of like cataloging film history and another great part about Moonlight winning is it's a black story that's not about slavery which is usually what the black stories mm -hmm. that get Oscar recognition are associated with or are recognized like you know like the help or 12 years of slave is a great movie um, but still a slave story and stuff like that so just having black life win best picture um, like yeah. you said and a small film uh, that that's great um, I knew that it had one best picture obviously because this moment but like I didn't know how many other nominations it received. It received eight nominations, which is a lot. Um, and it ended up winning three, Best Picture, obviously, um, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Mahershala Ali for his 35 minutes or whatever won Best Supporting Actor, but like so deserved. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, good. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy because he is kind of, he is pretty much like the lead character for the first 35 minutes. Of the mm -hmm. movie, like you said, it opens on him and it closes on him too. Like the last thing we see in chapter one is his head down because he had to admit to Little that he does sell drugs and his mom does drugs. And like Juan's ghost hangs over the rest of the movie too. So mm -hmm. um, what else did you look up? Because of films like If Beale Street Could Talk, Barry Jenkins has become a little bit more of a household name. So I wanted to know where he was in his um, career at this point. Um, so this was his first feature film in eight years when it mm -hmm. came out. Uh, he had had a career 
obviously had had a career before this. Um, but this, I think, really cemented him as like an everyday guy, uh, which is very exciting. And I wanted to know more about Barry Jenkins, like as a person and his relationship to this story. So uh, I was reading that Terrell Alvin McCraney, uh, who is the author of the play that this was written about, um, was nervous about Barry Jenkins directing this movie because of his heterosexuality and um, wasn't sure if like Barry Jenkins would fully represent how uh, McCraney felt who is homosexual. Um, And apparently after spending time together and writing the script together, Barry Jenkins tells him that his mother also suffered from drug addiction and he grew up in a very like, um, conflict ridden household and the two in writing this film like began to really like trust each other and i think that's really beautiful so yeah i thought it was really nice that the two found a way to relate to each other in order to make this film happen yeah i think it's one of the best examples or like a really good example of a person's story and a filmmaker coming together and like creating something greater from there like right like this was obviously written and directed by Barry Jenkins and he was adapting the story, but like Barry Jenkins was able to infuse some of his own life. Um, and, and like from the locations they filmed at, cause Barry Jenkins is also from, uh, the Miami, Florida area. Football is so huge in Miami. Like a lot of the best, like high school football in Miami is kind of insane. Barry Jenkins has said on Twitter, which again, great follow, um, that we would not have moonlight without the sport of football. He said, that's why, the meet cute with Kevin and and little happens after like a game of like throw up tackle and all that. Like it, it had to be that like the spirit of football and like, like the wrestling and camaraderie and like just how that culture is in Liberty city, Miami, Florida culture um, is so uh, crucial to any story that would come out of this area. And so um, I love that. Barry Jenkins was trusted and he earned that trust and that he was also able to infuse the the movie with his own little um, bits of himself as well. So um, do you have any questions for me? Yes, I have uh, some plot questions and some personal questions. Okay. Um, do you think that Black and Kevin hook up at the end of the movie? I yeah I think so I think so I think okay. the the thing we see at the end of of Kevin holding him is after I don't know about like hookup hookup but they at least like shared a kiss or yeah it like doesn't remain moment. completely platonic between the two of them no they got some stuff to figure out afterward um <laughs> what is your favorite section out of the three so when I first watched it it was the first section because of Mahershala Ali and the speech he gives about black boys look blue in the moonlight and, and all that, because I don't know, it's just, you love to see a a person like getting to mentor a child and like parent them in a way and become that adoptive family. Um, but on this most recent watch, I really liked the last chapter. I, I, I loved seeing all those loops come to an end or be tied up at the end and all those full circle storylines kind of start to complete themselves so black can just like live his life as himself um well i only got a chance to watch it one time so it may change but at the moment i think the middle section um was actually my favorite it's it has the um 
beats I've thought a lot most about since finishing. But I mean, it's pretty impossible to to truly choose. So, yeah. uh, you know, ask me again the next time I see it. I was going to say, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves or stays the same um, on upon revisits. Yeah, all good. Those are all my questions. Um, I did have like a couple notes I wanted to throw in there. Yes. Um, so we, again, we kept talking about the visual quality and beauty of this movie. And um, Barry Jenkins said on Twitter uh, that he... <laughs> Do you follow cinematog- Barry Jenkins on Twitter? <laughs> anyway, so th- it's like a dreamlike cinematography because they used um, these anamorphic wide open lenses. And he talked about his cinematographer, I, I might be mispronouncing this, but Stefan Renard. Um once Barry Jenkins told him like everything didn't need to be sharp, it didn't like that wasn't the point. It like really loosened things up for him, which is great because like he joked about like there's only three tack sharp shots in the whole movie, um, and it kind of creates this nice like dreamlike environment, especially in the second chapter, mm-hmm. because you know Chiron's so in his own head and world that everything else around it is hazy. And then um, the last thing I wanted to say was that again with the uh, cinematography and the look of it uh jenkins wanted to kind of color grade them in a way that each chapter of the film emulated different film stocks and they shot these on re alexa digital cameras so when they color graded it the first chapter is meant to look like a fuji film stock to intensify the skin tones of the cast the second was meant to imitate uh agfa film stock which is a film stock that is um, That's what I shoot I on. Believe your, yeah, I was going to say, what are your favorites? <laughs> um, I wanted to bring this up because we're both film photography hobbyists. Um, yeah. But that film stock added a lot of the stark blues to to everything, like from the the school to like the nighttime beach scene. And then the third chapter, they used a modified Kodak film stock. So a lot of Kodak film stocks are warmer and, and bring in those like oranges and yellows. Um, so I thought that was a, a little fun. Wow. Nugget. What a great little tidbit. Hashtag shoot film. Hashtag film is not dead. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag photography. Hashtag black and white film. Hashtag uh, shoot film. Stay broke. Uh, <laughs> you can um, follow uh, Zach and I and all of our hashtags also on Instagram. <laughs> Christ. Lastly, would you watch this movie again? I would watch this movie again. I think I need a little bit of time. Um, mm-hmm. I'm still like resonating with it right now, but um so I might not like rush back to it, but I would definitely boot it up when I'm in a particular mood. I'm glad you no longer have to walk around with that shame. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. Now I don't have to tell people that I saw it, but then stopped watching it. It's not, <laughs> not a good take. All right. Well, we're going to uh, turn to a movie that's almost impossible to be on your phone during because <laughs> it's so chaotic. <laughs> it's Yes, it's a lot. It's a lot of movie. All right. You ready for the wolf? I don't know. <laughs> we'll take a break. <laughs> we'll come back. We'll get ready for the wolf. This podcast is not at all sponsored by Pizzeria Bianco. Now, this is a Phoenix icon that doesn't need our shout out, but it is truly one of the best culinary experiences that you can get in the Valley. Go down there, get the Sunny Boy, which is my favorite pizza, and enjoy a glass of wine. Can't come to Phoenix? Buy a can of their tomato sauce online or any of their merch. All local businesses need help and all local businesses need support. Support Pizzeria Bianco and support local business. 
All right, friend, you ready? Let's talk about The Wolf of Wall Street. I'm just going to do this to torment you. I really hate it. It's in in my nitpicks. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. All right, tell me what happened in The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, Okay, The Wolf of Wall Street is directed by Martin Scorsese. Ever heard of him? Uh, Written by Terrence Winter, based on The Wolf of Wall Street by Jordan Belfort. The movie opens with Jordan Belfort, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, describing an extremely lavish lifestyle before flashing back to his first day on Wall Street in 1987. There, he meets Mark Hanna, played by Matthew McConaughey, who takes him to lunch and gives him unhinged advice about how to succeed. Jordan becomes a licensed broker, but then loses his job on Black Monday. Afterward, he joins a firm on Long Island that sells penny stocks, which he's able to sell at a high rate because of his pitching style and thus makes a shitload of money via commission, motherfucker. He becomes friends with Donnie Azoff, played by Jonah Hill, and the two start their own company called Stratman Oakmark. They hire Jordan's friends and get to work. Forbes magazine interviews Jordan, and after they name Jordan the titular Wolf of Wall Street, young people flock to work for him. Shortly after, he becomes even more rich, and it's around this point where he meets Naomi, played by Margot Robbie. They have an affair, and Jordan divorces his wife and marries Naomi instead. Meanwhile, the FBI and SEC are investigating the company. In 1993, Donnie gets his high school friend Steve Madden to work with them, and they make $20 million taking that company public because Jordan and his associates also have high stocks in the company, which is not legal. Um, This creates more pressure from the FBI, and after meeting agent Patrick Denham, played by Kyle Chandler, Jordan opens a Swiss bank account with the help of Naomi's aunt, who lives in England. After a snafu that includes Donnie accidentally getting Brad, who was played by John Bernthal, arrested, Jordan learns the FBI is wiretapping his phones. So Jordan's father begs him to leave the company, but he cannot. A few years later, while they're still under investigation, Jordan and Donnie take their wives to Italy on their yacht and learn that Aunt Emma has died. And so Jordan needs to get to Switzerland to make sure he doesn't lose his money that is under her name, and he forces his captain to sail their yacht. Uh, through a storm, but then they capsize. Jordan then takes this as a sign to get sober. In 1998, the FBI arrests Jordan, and he agrees to rat on his colleagues in order to get a lighter sentence. But whenever he goes back into the Stratman Oakman office, uh, he slips a note to Donnie and tells him that he's wearing a wire, which the FBI discovers and subsequently arrests Jordan. He receives a reduced sentence in a minimum security prison and serves just 22 months, and the movie ends on a scene showing Jordan at a seminar teaching sales techniques. How did I do? It's so good. I love this movie. So many things that happen in this movie. It's almost impossible to... There's so much that happens in the first 20 minutes of this movie. But but before we get to all of it, um, why don't you tell me why you picked it for me? So I think of this movie like a literary epic. Like there's so much that goes on. It goes through so many highs and so many lows. But I also think it teaches you that assholes are a little bit untouchable. And I think it definitely is like a, a snapshot of a certain type of very real alpha male masculinity that existed and still exists. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think that Scorsese and Leo both did a really good job of portraying it um, like hell on earth. And I think that Martin Scorsese is actually much funnier than people give him credit for, or maybe that people think of him as. And I think that he's really poking fun at this type of person in this movie. 
when they say like money doesn't solve all problems, my usual thought is like, let me try. As awesome as everything looks, you know, the parties, the lavishness, the the excess, it is hell. Like it's literally like you're in the seventh circle of hell when you're in the Stratman Oakman office. Um, and it's unrelenting. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, another reason is that I'm always looking for an excuse to talk about Jonah Hill. And yeah. we will definitely be talking more about <laughs> him. But he is like, this is, I think, the moment where everyone was like, oh, shit. He's unbelievable. Yeah, we'll, de- we'll definitely get to him in like probably 10 minutes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what were some of the first things that stood out to you um, while you were first watching it? This movie might be the funniest movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Yes. It's so hilarious. And there's always someone in the background doing like a different bit to the to the bits. Um, and it's like, how much did they improv? Apparently a ton, uh, including the chest thumping scene that uh, that you hate so much. Apparently that's what Matthew McConaughey really does to like get himself going before a scene. And and Leo and Marty were like, oh, just just put that in there. And there's a part where in the scene, Leo like looks off to the side um, and that's him looking at Marty to be like, is this good? We're good. Which also reminds me of like when Harry met Sally and they're doing the Paprikash bit and Meg Ryan looks off to the side and it's like, are we doing this? We're doing this. Okay. Like if you go to any sports game uh, that going into the fourth quarter or the second half or whatever, they'll probably play this clip, um, which is why I've seen it so much. I think one of the smartest things that Scorsese did is that he wanted all of the like extra people. So like not Jonah Hill and not um, Leonardo DiCaprio, but like all of the other core people that work at Stratman Oakmont, he hired comedians. He mm-hmm. hired like stand-up comics and like people who are working in TV, like funny TV shows that were kind of unknown, things like that. Um, and he wasn't looking for actors really. Like he were looking, he was looking for like comedians who are acting. We can just get into another thing that stood out to me was the supporting characters. So again, McConaughey, he's only in the movie for four minutes and gives the thesis statement of the movie. John Bernthal is hilarious as uh, Brad, the Quaalude King of Bayside. Favreau shows up. Fran Leibowitz shows up. Kyle Chandler plays a bit part. Like The cast is so stacked and, and everybody's on their A game. And that's like the power of Martin Scorsese. And no person is a bigger example of this than Jonah Hill, who iconic um so he was iconic good. from the trailer the teeth insane one of my favorite bits in the movie is whenever jonah hill and bernthal are like having their little fight before brad gets arrested and he's like oh yeah he's the citizen of foxville or whatever and you can see bernthal break for a moment and he's talked about how he broke for in this scene jonah hill is just throwing a million miles per hour being being donnie like it all of the zingers like you, we don't have enough time to fill with with it. Do you have a favorite Jonah Hill line? Yes, I have. I have so many, but like something I literally think about maybe once a week is the sides do cure cancer. Like it, the <laughs> delivery, because Rob Reiner is so mad. Like, Twenty five thousand dollars on a dinner, Jordy. What are you doing? These sides, you ordered all the sides. What are these sides? They cure fucking cancer. And he's like, that's the thing about the sides, sir. They did cure cancer, so we did have to. <laughs> and I'm convinced that Leo is when he's laughing and telling him shut the fuck up. Oh, I, that's I'm- like. All real. It has to be. 
I think that's uh, where Jonah Hill is so special as a comedic actor is because he's able to either play the laid back person playing it straight, being like, yeah, they actually could cure cancer and also like absurd and crazy and just saying asinine things. I like when they're on the plane and he's just like, go to sleep, go to sleep. I almost wanted him to like touch Leo on his nose and be like, boop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so funny. It's so ridiculous. When, when like him and Leo first meet and <laughs> Leo's like, oh, I heard these things, you know, about, about you and your cousin. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I mean like her dad is my mother's <laughs> brother <laughs> like won't say uncle it's so funny and he's like what she we grew up together she grew up hot what was i gonna do let somebody else fuck my cousin no if anyone's gonna fuck my cousin it's gonna be me out of respect like that's so, the like pause before out of respect is like why jonah hill is a fucking king it, it's and jonah hill if you listen to an interview about jonah he so clearly loves the art of filmmaking mm-hmm it almost seems corny and like cliche Hollywood person taking movies too seriously, but it is so genuine in his love for just the art form of movies um, that it like, it's, it's, it's just very, it's very charming. He loves his little sister, Beanie Feldstein, who we also love. He says in many interviews that whenever people are like, who is like your favorite actor in Hollywood right now? He almost always says Beanie, <laughs> which is so sweet. He talks about how every time he goes for interview cycles for a serious movie, uh, the media like media people are like, "Oh wow, this is like an interesting turn for you to more serious roles." And like, it's just because he broke out as a comedian. We could talk about him for forever, but uh, the last thing I wanted to say that stood out was penny stocks sound a lot like cryptocurrency. They they do in a way where I don't really understand how either of them work. <laughs> yeah, and I just know that they're like stupid cheap, and there is a way to get rich off of them. But I, I honestly don't care, and I don't think I'll feel good about it anyway. Yeah, cryptocurrency is bad for the environment, so it's probably not a good place to start. Um, but I think you're right, and I think that's like so much of this makes me modern day uncomfortable because it's like, oh, there's just like crypto assholes who are doing the same thing right now that act very alpha and like just are exactly this way and no one has learned anything <laughs> like it just is not penny stocks anymore or steve madden stocks um i think that adds to like my discomfort but i also think that adds to like marty's reason for putting it together um what are some of the things you've thought about most since you've watched the movie so we will talk about leo and we will talk about marty but first let's talk about margot robbie for 11 seconds <laughs> What an introduction for our girl. Martin Scorsese always has these like bombshell women playing like important roles in movies. And like the sneaky truth of it is like Scorsese really carves out these really cool, um, often like charged roles for women. It's as far as masculine as all his movies are, the secret sauce is that he does have these characters in there like Sharon Stone and Casino um, is the first one you think of, but or first one I think of. But yeah, so Margot Robbie, <laughs> she pulls off the the brooklyn long island accent i think well enough the hard part about being australian this is the nicole kidman thing is that like you always have to be doing a different accent and then she just turns this accent into her harley quinn accent but it's really cool to see margot robbie like she has a like a real career like she is one of the true like movers and shakers in hollywood she's a producer she's gotten like birds of prey made she she does a lot of did I say producing? Yeah, she does a lot of producing and, and movie making, and she's not just like a one 
movie wonder, right? Like she's not just, oh, she got hired because like we needed a, a super attractive person. Like, no, she is an actor who is really fucking good at her at her job. She's Academy Award winning. Um, she she hangs with Leo and Jonah and all these dudes being like ridiculous. Um, I think it's it's not the standout performance, but like if that role goes wrong, the whole thing sinks. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think Margot Robbie is so cool. And I agree on your, your comment about like how happy we are that she has a career still because she could have easily been pigeonholed into like hottest woman alive because like right. she's in the running for sure. Um, especially as this is her breakout role of just like sex object with, you know, she's conniving and she's powerful for sure. But like so much of her role, because this movie is from Jordan's point of view, is about his sexual attraction to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like she could also make Itania or Bombshell or whatever, like in these roles where are they're not specifically very sexually charged or she's playing a little bit more of a diverse character. Um, I would love to see Margot Robbie have a like Charlize Theron so- sort of career. Mm-hmm. I would love to see her play like, I mean, I guess with Itania, she sort of did play like someone who is completely unhinged the way Charlize Theron did for Monster. But I think that we are very far from the peak of Margot Robbie, uh, which is really exciting. Yeah. And she's, you know, she makes super interesting movies. She was, she works with interesting movie makers. You know, she was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in a performance I think was pretty underrated. And, and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what she does. She has a David O. Russell movie coming up. Um, oh, I would also be remiss to say also in 2013, she was in About Time, which is an important movie for me. But yeah, it's it's cool to see. I like the Charlie's Theron comp, especially given that Charlie's is also one of our great action stars right now mm-hmm. and how well Margot Robbie does as Harley Quinn. And like, honestly, the best part of the DC movies and those DC movies is whenever they just sort of like, all right, time for Harley Quinn to kick ass. Yeah, um, and it's really she, fun. And then she does. She'll do a whole movie or she'll do a whole fight scene on rollerblades. I, I love there's an antidote and it's, it could be one of those Hollywood antidotes that you just keep passing down. But apparently she like slapped Leonardo DiCaprio as an improv in her audition. Um, That's she's like, so brave. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was whenever um, they were doing the scene where they're fighting. Um, and she keeps throwing water on him. Who? Who? Are you an owl, Jordan? <laughs> but yeah, shout out to Margot Robbie. She's she's awesome. She's like she's solid in this movie, but then she goes on to be awesome. Um, so I was just thinking about how like it's great that she has a decade later become one of our biggest movie stars. Um, all right, let's get into Marty. Marty. Uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, one of our great American filmmakers of all time, potentially the most important American filmmaker um, of the last 50 years. Uh, this was an interesting time in his filmography. Like, obviously, when you have as long of a career as he's had with as many movies as he has had, it'll go through ebbs and flows, and he's allowed to take shots that other people won't. Um, it comes after Hugo, which is a movie that exists, mm-hmm. and it also comes after Shutter Island, um, a movie I haven't seen. I like that uh, movie. Yeah, I feel like that movie has aged well. Um, yeah, there's like a I, Shutter I liked Island it. hive. Yeah, I remember liking it, and then I. Uh, remember being surprised when i grew up that other people secretly liked it also um a great mark ruffalo role as well naturally this movie feels like especially after hugo he was just like all right screw it i'm getting i have a lot of money to work with i have all these people who want to work with me we're gonna do the most like this is Mm -hmm. the last 30 minutes of goodfellas 
turned into three hours. Um, yeah. Like lots of coke, lots of needle drops. It's like every single trick that Marty has is in this movie amplified to the nth degree. It is the way I like would describe it. To me, it is the ultimate Martin Scorsese. It is like every trope, every actor, like it is this is what Martin likes to do to make movies. And I watch almost every single one of them. <laughs> There's not a lot to say about Martin Scorsese that hasn't already been said, but given that this movie was almost also made by like Ridley Scott, um, that that gross feeling you get from all this excess and richness, I think is Martin Scorsese like in that deft touch he has to put themes into a movie without like while also making something look awesome i'm also wondering if this is probably the best martin scorsese movie of this century like the other oh, contenders really are like the departed the departed which is a movie a lot of people love um and the irishman which is continuing to age better and better as people finally like watch it and finish it i think this is the most successful movie of these there's gonna be a gangs of new york hive there's an aviator hive there's a big departed crowd I mean, The Departed did win him his Oscar, which is like hard to argue with. But I do think that this movie is people who don't know who Martin Scorsese is have seen this movie. Yeah, exactly. And like love this movie. I think it's more is potentially his most mainstream popular movie. Of this of this century. Because Good Phyllis is obviously gonna be the one forever. Um but he also has Killers of the Flower Moon coming up, which is probably going to be awesome. It has Leo. It has De Niro. It has his two like his two sons coming together. <laughs> together. That's Jesse Plemons. It's Jesse Plemons. And it's um, about a Western crime. Fire it up. Yeah. So, <laughs> so excited. So we'll see, man. Uh, but Martin Scorsese. Uh, honestly, my favorite moment of Martin Scorsese this century might be when uh, everybody just gave him a standing ovation at the Oscars um, during Bong Joon-ho's best director speech. That's good. Um, he's awesome. All you people with negative Martin Scorsese opinions, like go read a book, go touch grass. <laughs> go touch um, grass, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't have any other thoughts on that other than Martin Scorsese, what a guy he did it. And then um, the last thing I've thought about the most is for as much as Jonah Hill, like steals scenes and shows, uh, like his comedic chops, I think it's really important that he had somebody that was playing off of him that was able to shift around him. And Leonardo DiCaprio, this might be my favorite performance from him, or this might seem like the, like the most, the best Leo performance. He's so malleable in this movie because he goes through every version of Leo. Like he's he's unhinged and angry and yelling at the top of his lungs, and also he's like sweet and charming. He's smarmy. He's insane. He has to crawl to his Lamborghini just like he had to crawl in the Revenant. Like I, I feel like this is the apex of Leo's. To me, I feel like this is the one that he should have won for. Um, I mean, even though there's a million of them, but it's a, a like a crime that the Supreme Court needs to investigate. <laughs> that he did not win Best Actor. <laughs> How does this generation's best actor in his best role not win a fucking award? Let me tell you something about the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so unbelievable that they like they knew they messed up and that's why they gave it to him with the Revenant. Which like the Revenant still he like Leo goes to the end of his everything to like at every movie. Like he never dials it in. Like he never calls it in. Like he's always going for it, which is why he's fucking Leonardo DiCaprio. He is what you think of when you think of a movie star. But I think that this was the one 
that he was like, all right, Marty, I'm going for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm going all in. And the Academy said, no, thank you. This feels like the, the right performance, the right character, the right story where Marty's like, all right, Leo, I've trained you now go. Like he gave him the keys. Um, he, he's able to, to shift and move in all these different ways and play off all these fun character actors and movie stars. And, um, this just feels like the totality. And, and 2013 was a fun year for Leo because he's also Gatsby this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's very much in excess. This is right after the Django uh, mm-hmm. role in 2012. But it's crazy. We just take Leo for granted. He's always in good projects. He always gives good performances. And Leo has like all these different gears. Like I, I think of him in his top gear when he's shouting. And, and like it's so it's either angry or like just out of control. And it's so specifically good for like this movie like and he's so coked out and he, he's played mm-hmm. that before and, and all that stuff but um i don't know Leo, Leonardo just DiCaprio like just, how just... he can like move in that range so quickly yeah and have it feel genuine like i think about the scene on the boat where um they find out like that aunt or they find out like their money is um oh yeah they find out like from Rugrat that like things are happening and then they got to like stay away from foreign lands and yada, yada, yada. So like at sea and then Aunt Emma comes and the way he talks to Rugrat and then he's like so coked out and then he has to be like, oh no, Aunt Emma. And he's thinking like my money. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> but like just the way like that's like a totally different guy. And then he's like, you know what? We're going. We're go- we got to go to Switzerland. We got to be do business. Like we're just like moving around, and it all happens like three minutes, and like every bit is like more ridiculous than the last. Like no human being talks the way he did when he's when he talks about Aunt Emma in that scene. It's so funny, and like he plays Jordan Belfort so well that you believe that like he really did scam, uh, like tons of people out of like a shit ton of money when a movie is tells you all the time that someone's awesome at something like i need them to also show me like one scene of them being awesome at the thing and so when he's first sell he's selling that first penny stocks of aerotine and uh he's like he's, he's using his hands a lot and he's like very expressive in selling um and then it's like oh that's that's it that's that's why jordan belfort is good at this like even when he's telling his his telephone terrorists and you know like the steve madden speech uh and like he reaches like like it's like when on fast and furious and they use nos like they've run out of gears to randomly (laughs) shift to and then they use nos and he like just is shaking because he's so coked out um that's such a crazy like filmmaking sequence because like then he does like the baseball bat Mm-hmm. motion and then the the camera just tracks and you realize that you're in like the ninth circle of hell mm-hmm. um, but but leo has to be the leader of all that and 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 he is so we love our actors our filmmakers all that good stuff but what were some of the things you looked up about the movie after you finished i was like how much is true because obviously this is an autobiographical movie like based on like Jordan Belfort's book about himself. And it's like, not this can't all be true. This has to be just a rich guy playing up his rich shit. Shockingly, a lot of it is true. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, most of it is factual. <laughs> the the names, some of the names change, like Margot Robbie's character or Jonah Hill plays a, like a, a culmination of people. But Mark Hanna, 
real guy. He really did give Jordan Belfort the advice of cocaine, masturbation, and hookers being the uh, key to succeeding on Wall Street. Uh, The helicopter crash while he was high, real. Uh, Him crashing his Lambo, real. The yacht capsizing in a storm and their rescue, real. The plane crash that happened afterward, real. Things that are almost like too ridiculous to make up. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, right, where you hear like sometimes the real story doesn't make as good of a movie because it's so unbelievable. And yet this mm-hmm. is like and you're introduced to Jordan Belfort as like, oh, this guy's clearly going to be an unreliable narrator. And often it's like lazy writing, right, to get like unreliable narrator, lots of narration, fourth wall breaking. But it isn't because it needs to paint this picture of this piece of shit. It's just kind of hilarious how much of this is actually happened terrifying and a little depressing but also just insane that uh this is all pretty true um and then the other thing i looked up obviously is the oscars uh this was the ellen selfie oscars oh wow that's aged strangely but got five nominations best picture best director best actor best supporting actor and screenplay it won none of them let me repeat it won none of them it lost to 12 years a slave for best picture that's fine uh, Alfonso Coron for Gravity. Um, Matthew McConaughey won for Dallas Buyers Club, which is a choice. Uh, this was the peak of the reconnaissance. And honestly, Wolf of Wall Street was one of the main factors of starting that reconnaissance. So mm-hmm. uh, that's why Leo didn't win. Supporting actor also went to Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club over Jonah Hill. That's so wild. Like we just had like a conversation about like, is this one of our best directors, best movies? And at simultaneously, is this one of our best actors, best movies? And the people who are in charge of awarding things were like, no. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What? I want to know what the Academy has against Martin Scorsese. I think it's just because he's so good, we take him for granted. Like this is a guy that's made Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. And it's like, okay, so Licorice Pizza is one of my favorite movies of 2021. But it's like Paul Thomas Anderson's sixth best movie. Mm -hmm. You know, so like it's a disappointment almost in a way in that filmography. But in the scope of the rest of the movies of the year, it's one of the best. Mm-hmm. whether or not you like licorice pizza but like the point still stands with marty if it's not as good as goodfellas or taxi driver people might overlook it or just think it's like oh it's mid-grade marty that this is what we expect from him right it's not a revelation it's it's like when matthew mcconaughey wins for dallas buyers club it's like whoa we didn't know he could do that so i think it's just taking marty for granted like he also always makes movies that push a little bit against something or that's why i think he's so good he's so funny that's why he's a great film like that's why he's a great director and great filmmaker he he's not doing it just to like give you a wrapped up happy ending he tried that with hugo it didn't work for him um Mm -hmm. that's why you end goodfellas with like 30 minutes of a coked out scene or that's why you end wolf of wall street on like a like a shitty like divorce settlement and then you know this guy got away with it like you don't always leave his movies feeling good yeah i think you leave most of his movies feeling bad (laughs) uh is there anything that you want to ask me about this movie i'm so sorry but uh what do you have a favorite leo is this your favorite leo i I know you have a soft spot for catch me if you can okay if we're just talking about leonardo dicaprio performances yeah stop okay so this movie I think of Romeo and Juliet. I think Classic. of Catch Me If You Can. And honestly, since watching it last year, two years ago, I think a lot about Revolutionary Road. 
I think that those are sort of my my top Leos, but if I had to be chained to one, it's going to be Catch Me If You Can. Do you have a favorite Leo? I honestly, this is such recency bias, but I really love him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's, you really he's did. Also so funny in that movie. Like the freak out in the trailer is all time <laughs> so- stuff. Oh, you know, Inception as well. I feel like yeah. he's, I guess he's really not the best there. part of that movie, but like that's like one of my most watched Leo movies. So, but I mean, I don't know if there's been a better Leo than Wolf of Wall Street. So, and then there's a lot of movies we need to catch up on in terms of Martin Scorsese, but like, do you have a favorite Marty? Probably The Departed, but Goodfellas is like a movie I stupid watch a, like a couple times a year. Taxi Driver, obviously incredible. Um, I think Marty hits way more than he misses, obviously. And even the movies that are lesser tier Marty are still like really fucking good. So yeah. but if I had to if I had to be married to one, I'll probably pick the departed. For me, like what a hot take, but Goodfellas is probably my favorite. Marty oh, Wolf of Wall Street is up there now. I have a soft spot for Mean Streets. I, that was the first Marty movie that like clicked for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, th- that's the only that's the only two I've had. Uh that is this your favorite Jonah Hill performance? Yeah. It has yeah. to be. I mean, that's really hard because I really love Superbad. Why the fuck would it be between that and Muhammad is like the best the best thing that anything's ever said ever is and then for the follow-up to be like, Muhammad's the most common name in the world. Read a book. Also, 21 Jump Street, I feel like is also a very important comedy so for funny. our generation. So good. Yeah, he's great in that movie. Moneyball. I mean, Moneyball is great, but I think like this is everything he's good at yeah. is in this movie. Yeah. He is a, he's keeping up with Leo. He is funny as hell. He's visceral. He's crude. He's swarmy. Like he's just at like 200%. And like for that, I just, I, I have to say it's my favorite Jonah, but I'm willing for Jonah to make more things that can become my favorite Jonah. I can't wait for him and Beanie Feldstein to make a movie together. I can't wait for him to direct Beanie Feldstein in a movie. Do you have any questions, comments that you'd like to get off your chest? Um, the only other thing I really like needed to say is that, you know, there's a ton of supporting characters. Like I said that Marty went to find comedians versus over actors. And um, one of my favorite podcasters uh, the host and founder of Last Podcast on the Left, Henry Zabrowski, plays Sea Otter, uh, the one who sells meat and weed. <laughs> and like his expressions are so funny in this. Because I'm obviously looking for him like when they do a crowd, sh- like a crowd um, shot, because I listen to two of his podcasts every week um, for the last couple of years. Um, but I think that's fun. Or I'm like, oh, that's my guy. That's uh, in a fucking Martin Scorsese movie. Hell yeah. <laughs> so fun. And it's funny because like on the pod, like anytime someone mentions like Leo, like intense drug trips, Martin, big movies or whatever, he'll always be like, and rent Wolf of Wall Street on iTunes today. <laughs> he always like brings it up. That's funny. That's so good. And uh, I guess the only other thing that maybe it's an I'm not a man thing, but people love the Matthew McConaughey scene. 
And because I've seen this so many times, I fast forwarded through it uh, this last time. It makes me so viscerally uncomfortable. And it's like, just that is everything about alpha males that I don't like (laughs) in one scene. And it's like the way he plays it is so real that I like can't be around it. (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay. So uh, even though that's such a weird take, it's also well-founded because he gives the thesis statement of the movie of like, all right, you're going to do a lot of drugs. You're going to be around a lot of women and you're going to be selfish and make these decisions that only benefit you and fuck everyone else and make your money. And it does remind you that these guys suck. Like that last scene with Margot Robbie and Leonardo DiCaprio is gross and disgusting and shitty. And it's actually probably like what Jordan Belfort is like, yeah. Or, you know, that is his character. All the other stuff is his drug trips and like what he sees. And the McConaughey scene is the preview for all of that. I think the word I'm looking for that makes me so like my stomach twirl is that his character and his uh, moment is very primal. And like that to me is I love that men have evolved in <laughs> just in general, just end statement. Um so when they when I like am around moments like this, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I don't like this at all. That's fair. The most uncomfortable scene for me is the the head shaving. They bring in the band and the strippers, and I'm like, this is literal hell. I know I've said this like seven times, yeah. But I'm like, oh, these this is hell, and these guys are all demons. Jordan gets uncomfortable in that moment, realizing what he's put together, and you can see that on the way Leo is playing it and the way he yeah has to- yeah slugs off to the side and stuff like it doesn't look fun and then the the camera matches that it's really smart would you watch this movie again did you like it absolutely definitely gonna watch it again at some point or at least watch clips of it um again three hours is a haul but uh it's a really good clip movie (laughs) so which movie did uh you like the most out of the one's more inherently fun and more of a romp than the other but um so which one did you like more between the two I really liked them both. <laughs> Thank you for introducing me to that movie. But I really just love The Wolf of Wall Street. It's so ridiculous in all sense. Which movie did you like most? It's extremely close. And yeah. It might be a mood thing. But yeah. I think in general, I, I like Moonlight better. Um, why don't you tell the people what we're doing for our next swap? We're swapping a couple of animated movies next. A complete left turn out of yeah. uh, these two movies specifically. But I am asking you to watch another intense, sad movie. Um, <laughs> I'm having you watch Inside Out for the first time. And what are you having me watch? You get to learn how to train your dragon. Hell yeah. I'm, I'm giving you this fun adventure movie and I'm like, I get depression in San Francisco. No, it's so good. Riley's <laughs> such a good character. In case it wasn't clear, I'm watching Inside Out and Amanda's watching How to Train Your Dragon. Um, what do you know about How to Train Your Dragon? I know that the dragon, the black dragon is named Toothless mm-hmm. um, because it's a very common black cat name. Um, oh. Is to name your cat Toothless. Um, and I know that people really liked it. What do you know about Inside Out? I know that it's sad. Um, I know that sadness is a character. Uh, and I think there's like pizza with broccoli in it at some point or something like that. <laughs> it's not something I remember, but it doesn't mean you're wrong. I do know it's a, one of those Disney animated movies that um, really just 
grabs your soul and yanks it out and then repackages it and makes you smile at the end or something like that. So we'll see. We respect animated movies here. And so, you know, got to got to give love to the animators. It'll be fun to talk about all the technical bits and, and all that fun stuff. It'll be um, it'll just be a good time. We love we love to, you know, entertain our inner child. <laughs> yeah, we love to have a good time. In addition to Inside Out, what else is on your watch list right now? So when you listen to this, the Oscars will have taken place like two weeks ago or whatever. So hopefully I will have watched Will Smith's acceptance speech for his role in King Richard. Fuck yeah. Don't fuck this up, Academy. I swear to God, if it's like all respect to this man, if Benedict Cumberbatch wins or something like that, like y'all fucked up again. Just let Will Smith and the Williams sisters get on the stage and like give speeches. Just, just let that happen. Um, so hopefully that. And then other movie on my uh, watch list is Last Picture Show. Um, Peter Bogdanovich drama that won Best Picture um, a while back. And so figured probably uh, after What's Up Doc to kind of go through his filmography. How about you? Deepwater comes out this week. And I know that's on your watch list. Honestly, two other really good movies I'm looking forward to are coming out this week also. So Windfall comes out this week as well. And then also X, an A24 horror movie comes out. And it's basically like, what if um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Boogie Nights were the same movie? Oh, man. I just just stay tuned. to. I mean, you've probably already seen our deep water thoughts at this point. But, you know, congrats to all of us. So we're definitely going deep into the water uh, in the next little bit. You can always find us on the internet talking about that. But for now, thank you so much for listening. You can always find a new episode of the Blind Spotters podcast on the second Tuesday of the month. You can follow the pod on Instagram at Blind Spotters Pod. You can follow us on Twitter at Blind Spotters. Zach, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pocklib or on Letterboxd for all the unhinged thoughts about Ben Affleck, Ana de Armas, water, deepness, all of it. <laughs> Where can people find you on social? You can find me and send me any compliments on any social media site at Amanda Luberto. Follow our pod. Rate us five stars. Get those numbers up. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) The cawing is what's like the worst. Like it just imagine you're imagine you're at that restaurant. Mm